Welcome to For Whom the Sale Tolls. I'm your host, Keenan, joined by Scout and Cannon, two dogs that help. So I did promise follow-up. Didn't say when. Unfortunately, it's been two weeks since the last one, but I hope that, uh, that the ideas are still fresh. Basically, what we covered in part one is that there's a show called The One, and it's based on a book, too. Very good book. Basically, if you sequence your genome, there are clues in the genome, in the DNA blueprint, that will show you who you are best matched with and attracted to, for example, who's like your soulmate, essentially. And I kind of covered that this is not impossible, right? So let's cover a little bit how. And I want to go and start with peacocks, and I think we talked a little bit about them in the last episode. I couldn't, I can't, I could be wrong. So for a long time, peacocks were very vexing for Darwin. Why did male peacocks light up like blue, green, fluorescent like this? And why did they go out into the open and make these shows so that they could just get spotted and eaten by predators? How did that pass genes on better? And as it turns out, on the chromosomes that contain the genes that produce those vibrant color proteins, those big, like all the colors, all the patterns, everything, those same genes are physically next to, on the chromosome, most of their immunity genes. Genes that have the power to create receptors on their T-cells, natural killer cells, anything like that, that can go and find and kill pathogen. So if you have good color as a peacock, you have very good immunity as a peacock. This was a way for female peacocks to tell, okay, how are my offspring going to look? So that's kind of the recap on the species side of it. And that varies between species, obviously. There's different ways that immunity is kind of shown Sometimes it is just in sort of a physical fitness look, as it is with maybe some pack animals, for example. But I did promise you humans. So there was a study conducted a while back where, I and I believe this was at Stanford, where participants were given different sets of clothes that had been worn by other participants. They were tasked with smelling the clothes and then ranking the attractiveness of that person, of that participant who had worn the clothes, whoever that was, and this was all anonymous. As it turns out, there was a strange finding. The main thing that they found was that people selected other people with very different immune systems to theirs. And what I mean by very different is very that they had certain genes that the person choosing did not have. Inherently, what this means is that subconsciously, humans are selecting for somebody that if they had offspring with, those offspring would come with a lot of diverse immune receptors, lots of HLA genes, lots of natural killer cell genes, lots of toll-like receptors that can all bind to diverse sets of targets. Some get parasites, some get viruses, some get bacteria. Because if you had, let's say, a pandemic, and it was a little more, you know, a very aggressive one, let's say, you may lose one or two out of your four children, but maybe one or two of those children at least will survive because they had a different immune setup that was well prepared for the virus. This kind of goes into just evolution in general, that the more diverse a species, the better off you're going to be against a violent change, basically. But the question still remained, how did smell translate to immunity. And there's a link. There's something that exists in every human that's not in the genome, but it is very much a partner 
and it's very much monitored by our immune system. And it's something I think we covered in either episode three, five, or four, I can't remember. But it's all those little symbiotic or commensal microbiome bacteria species inside of us. Or, or viral or fungal, there's, there's actually species that exist with those within those taxa as well. As it, as, it, as it goes, one of humans' best ways to gauge another's immune system is based on the following trajectory. Your immune system that you're born with has a certain setup, a set of tools that kill or allow to live certain types of pathogen. The types of bacteria that are allowed to live inside of you are reflective of you, what your immune system is built to not destroy in a lot of cases. Therefore, your, the composition of your microbiome, specifically in this case, the skin microbiome, which is made in contact with the clothes, is a reflection of what your immune system looks like. Your smell is what your immune system looks like. At least this is one of our stronger ways to tell that. This is, leads into a kind of a cool segue about smell, which is humans are one of the rare mammals that doesn't really rely on smell as the number one sense. Primates in general rely on sight far more than other mammals. Humans take that to another extreme. Sight is our biggest, best sense. But typically, and even, and what we can tell from the, the, the Neanderthal genome, the Denisovan genome, smell was very much king in those, in those groups. And it very much was in Homo sapiens as we were evolving as well. But gradually, the need for smell went away a little bit. Because as you kind of break the rules of evolution, a few things kind of fly out the door, right? Now, the power of smell is not to be, you know, it's not to be under, you know, undersold. Neanderthals could theoretically had such good smell, you could smell when somebody was upset. You could smell when somebody was happy. You could smell when somebody was anxious. That level of communication could be done without sound, sight, everything. So it was a big advantage. Sight started taking a role much more and hearing when language and knowledge was passed down in those, in those respects. And that's when they likely gained a, a bigger advantage. Now, somebody who's a, a human evolutionary biologist would likely tell you a lot more better things about how sight did a lot, you know, had a lot more advantages, but I probably can't, can't go in as much. So back to where we're at with the fact that smell is still a very big link to how somebody is chosen. This kind of goes back to my concept for the show, which is how accurate is that? I would say that the one would be a lot more accurate if you did sequence somebody's immune genes as a panel, like very strictly. And if you sequenced kind of a diversity species index of the microbiome, and you got a really good picture of what somebody's immune system looks like, and you matched that person with somebody with a very, very different, unique immune system so that inherently their offspring is going to come with every tool possible, right? That's technically the idea behind these. Now, pausing as I usually do, humans are special. The human brain is very plastic. It behaves with less instincts than most, if not any mammal maybe, since that we can learn from experiences in real time and we can gleam knowledge from past experiences of others as well. So our impressions of attractiveness, soulmate, anything like that, still may be far more influenced on a psychology level than a genomic level. So I don't want to go 
too hard in the pain and say, yes, it's all genetics, for example. If you watch the show or read the book, it is very haunting when the, when the genetics show up and it's like, oh, like, yeah, that's totally the person that, that I am going to fall for. It was, it was definitely uncomfortable to say the least. It's worth watching. So this kind of brings me to a cumulative point that these two episodes were kind of leading to. And as you know, this is kind of a, this is a cancer biology podcast. It's not technically, you know, just a pure genetics podcast. But the point that the power in of the genome and of the blueprint, what it holds, I wanted to ask each of you, and you, you know, you don't, you can obviously comment or anything on this if you wanted, but you can just think about it too. How much knowledge could be gained from sequencing your genome? You've probably thought of that before. All the diseases, all the variabilities, all the traits. And I mean everything. Big knowledge. Like combos of genes that tell us how you would react to certain diseases. Combos of genes to show us, for example, maybe what climate you would best exist in. But another question exists. How much knowledge could be gained by sequencing everybody? Now, the first thing that many people think is... Violation of privacy, bad, bad big data, bad all this, you know, bad who holds the data, where's it going to go, what's it going to be used for? These are founded in history. These are correct instincts to have, right? But the next episode I do, I'm going to pose a question. It's a similar question that I've had for my class. If everybody, let's say, in the United States was sequenced, what could we do with that information for their DNA? What kind of, you know, what kind of predictive power could we have? I think the larger, one of the larger genome repositories right now has about 18,000 similarly curated genomes. These are full genomes, uh, less similar to 23andMe, which does single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are just little changes across the genome, as well as some allele changes, obviously, like tons of them. But what could we do as far as that? And is that power something that is even worth the investment, right? Because does a genome sequence give us anything about histones, epigenetics, how much of a gene is transcribed? This is only going to tell us just the full-on genome. It's not going to tell us what somebody's heart cells look like, what somebody's brain cells look like, what somebody's intestinal cells look like. But could this amount of data tell us a lot about the immune system, for example? Could this amount of data, if you had thousands of people set up who gets the virus? Who doesn't get the virus? What do those genomes look like? What are the differences? Now isolate the group that did get the virus. Who gets a severe reaction? Who gets a moderate to low reaction? What are the gene differences there? And if you're talking about so many people, a number so high, you're approaching a mathematical, not certainty, but very sure, very little uncertainty about where things are going, you may find certain differences that we could have never predicted without mass information like this. But the next episode that I do, it won't quite be a part three, but it's going to be leading up on this question. What would be the positives and the negatives of sequencing everyone? So with that, I'm going to go walk the dogs. Have a good day and thank you for listening.